Tim Pratt. I'm a science fiction fantasy writer and editor. I have been doing this since I was six years old. Very slow learning curve since I didn't start publishing until I was in my 20s. But I love science fiction, love fantasy. Welcome to this series with Hugo Award-winning author Tim Pratt, science fiction fantasy writer and poet. collection ah, sorry. the alien yep. stars oh yeah it's uh it's three novellas so i did this this uh little bit of setup i did a trilogy a space opera trilogy called the axiom series for angry robot it was called the wrong stars the dreaming stars and the forbidden stars and it wrapped up the story as a, as a trilogy but it was it's an ensemble cast in all three books uh, essentially the crew of this ship you know this group of friends this found family that works together to save the galaxy there were a few characters that i really loved who never got the spotlight in the series right they were always supporting characters secondary characters but i just didn't get to shine a light on them and really let them take center stage like i wanted so i pitched this idea to do three novellas each one focusing on one of those characters and turned out really well, and people seem to like it. So yeah, let me read a chunk of this. I think I'll just read the first bit of the initial novella, which is called The Augmented Stars. Delilah Mears settled into the pod in the hypnos parlor on New Metatrine. The pod closed over her, and she underwent a moment of swirling disorientation before opening her eyes in a cluttered machine shop that smelled of hot metal and solvents. This was supposed to be a job interview, but the interviewer wasn't in evidence. Hello, she called. No response. Well, she was a couple of minutes early. She hadn't wanted to risk being late. She didn't really need this job, not this one in particular, but she wanted it. Doing the interview in a simulation was a little strange, since she'd already come all the way out to trans-Neptunian space, but maybe the captain was busy preparing for the voyage, and this was easier to schedule. Delilah paced back and forth beside a table cluttered with hand tools, snips of wire, shiny gear wheels, circuit boards, and weird stuff like faintly shining blue crystals and palm-sized cubes of greasy black material. Pegboards on the walls held more tools, coils of cord, and protective equipment. The lights overhead were long strips of steady whiteness, illuminating the space as thoroughly as an operating theater. She leaned closer to the table and grunted. She could see the wood grain on the top, and when she ran her thumb across the surface, the tiny irregularities and indentations felt completely real. This simulation was far more realistic than the low-res headset and glove stuff she'd used for training in engineering school. She'd never been much for recreational interactive immersives, but she hadn't realized they'd come this far. Pretty nice, huh? 
Delilah looked up into the face, if you could call it that, of a cyborg. Instead of eyes, he had complex clusters of lenses, and very little flesh showed through a mask of copper-colored metal, though he had a human smile and chin. He held up his hands, didn't mean to startle you, and she saw one of his arms was artificial too, encased in translucent crystal, gears and pistons visible underneath the casing. Dr. Ranganathan? She looked down at her own avatar, which was just a simple scan of her real body taken when she stepped through the door of the hypnos parlor, dressed in a plain gray jumpsuit. I feel underdressed. She knew people sometimes appeared in fanciful avatars, elves and pirates and dragons, but she hadn't expected something like that from a ship's captain in a job interview. Call me Ashok. You mean the cyborg thing? <clears throat> I was about to argue because this avatar is based on a scan of my body, but to be fair, it's a few years out of date, and it's true, I don't look like this anymore. Delilah blushed and wondered if her avatar would do so too. How responsive was this technology? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were, uh, augmented? No problem. You're from Earth, right? New on New Metatream? Isn't everyone new here? New Metatream station had been built only a few years ago, and parts of it were still under construction. She'd walked here through corridors that still smelled of off-gassing polymers. The original Metatream station had been destroyed in what was either a terrible accident or a more terrible terrorist attack, accounts varied, with all 50,000 of his residents killed. The tiny corporate polity known as the Trans-Neptunian Alliance had nearly perished with its capital, but the TNA had since been reconstituted. Their first order of business was building a new city station named in honor of the Lost One, and they once again ruled inhabited space on the fringes of the solar system. The new TNA had developed a reputation for innovation. They had impressive proprietary tech, and their president was supposedly an artificial intelligence, though back home everyone thought that was a publicity gimmick and assumed the organization was secretly run by a human board of directors. The TNA's reputation for daring drew the ambitious, the impatient, and the innovative from all over the inhabited galaxy, and Delilah considered herself to be all three. Oh, some of us are newer here than others, Ashok said. I used to call the old Metatream station home. Wow, he must have been one of the few residents who'd been off station when the place exploded. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to be insensitive. His eye lenses spun, and after a moment he chuckled. Don't worry about it, I wasn't hurt. My friends tell me I can be insensitive occasionally myself, and even with all my upgrades, I don't always realize it. His lenses shifted again, one lighting up with a golden glow. So, I've got your resume here, and you're totally qualified to be my ship's engineer. You went to Mumbai Tech. I got waitlisted there and ended up at Lunar University. That's a good school, Delilah said. And it was. It was just that Mumbai Tech was a great school. I've got no complaints, but practical experience was my real teacher. You can do simulations all day, but repairing a breached reactor in an immersive isn't the same as doing it in space, where if you mess up, everybody dies, and you die first. I know I don't have much actual work experience, but he shook his armored head. Oh, whoa, no, wait, that came out wrong. I don't mean like, don't come in here with your fancy book learning. I mean, you're more qualified than I was when I started out, and I ended up being a pretty good engineer. So once you log some time in space, you're going to be better than I ever was, I bet. I am kind of wondering, though, why come all the way out to the edge of the solar system and try out for a spot on a ship heading to deep space? With your qualifications, you could get a job that pays more and is likely less likely to, um, well, end up with you irradiated or exposed to vacuum or worse things. Delilah considered how to answer and decided honesty was best. I came out here because I grew up on Earth, and my whole life has been spent learning the skills necessary to get me out of the gravity well and into the unknown. 
I love engineering, obviously. I'm at my happiest tinkering around inside a ship. But for me, that study was all a means to an end. What end? Just going as far as I can. I turned down jobs on Earth, Mars, and Luna, and I was actually on Ganymede doing interviews with different Jovian Imperative companies when I saw your listing on the Tangle. She had, in fact, been offered a cushy job on Ganymede, but if this worked out, I can't pay as well as the Almajara Corporation can, Ashok said. I've got a ship, and it's in good shape, but my budget is basically what I got for this. He knocked on the work table. For what? This tactile texture thing? Feel how real the wood seems? I did that. Oh, I didn't know you did software design. Me neither. I was always a hardware guy, but for personal reasons, I took an interest in simulation technology a couple years ago, figured out how to improve tactile detail. My friend Callie said I should have licensed the tech, not sold it outright, but then people would be bugging me to do updates and stuff, and... Well, it's like you said, the software was a means to an end. I wanted seed money for deep space exploration, and I got some. But I'm not rolling in licks, and you won't be fixing the light bulbs on a luxury liner if you sign up with me. It's going to be real nuts and bolts and radiation and hard vacuum stuff. I understand. He grinned, which was disconcerting, but also charming. So you'll take the job? Does that mean I have the job? You had the job as soon as you told me why you wanted it. A one-year contract to start, but the penalties if you break it aren't substantial, as long as you don't try to leave during, like, a critical drive failure. That works for me. Nice. You know, I came out here to Transnep's Tunian space for all the same reasons you did. I wanted to know what's on the other side of the far side of everything. His lenses both glued gold now. Why don't we go and find out? Well, that's the end of the first scene, so... Nice. All right, yeah, I, I really appreciate the detail on that one. Uh, like, I, I like the the arm and the gears. I kind of that'll catch people. I mean, cut my attention. I'll catch other people's attention who, who, uh, if you will, the romanticism of of space tech. And then the the glowing uh, lens was really cool because you uh, you signaled kind of like the characters reviewing their resume, and then he says, "Oh, I'm just looking at your resume now." Yep. Well, and when you have somebody who has a bunch of metal for a face, you have to find other ways to deal with expressiveness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I was thinking about that while you were going through this, that this is, you were saying earlier that this is a collection of novelettes about characters from a previous work. Yeah. Could you, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Sure. <laughs> what what part specifically? I'm looking for the trap door that gets the audience into this into this story, and uh, if and so it sounds like this this previous work will be a, also a nice something that they'd be interested in reading. Uh, so what's the title and where do they go get it? Oh, absolutely. So it's the Axiom series, uh, Axiom trilogy, and then I wrote a fourth book because why not? Uh, the first one is called The Wrong Stars. It was. Honestly, it was my most successful book that I'd had in years. Uh, it was a Philip K. Dick Award finalist. Nice. People responded to it really well. It was my first foray into space opera. I had been primarily a fantasy writer before that, contemporary fantasy and urban fantasy, and some historical stuff. But it was my first like real spaceships, aliens, science fiction. Grew up reading that stuff and finally thought, you know, I'll, ta I'll take a stab at, at writing this. And the response has been great. But it's set about 600 years in the future. Humanity is spread throughout the galaxy. We made contact with these aliens called liars. That's what we call them. It's not what they call themselves. They're about toddler-sized. They're sort of like squid. They got tentacles, and they don't tell the truth ever. They they lie. Like, we made first contact, and 
they told us all these amazing things about this galactic federation of all these different alien species, totally made up, met some other ones. They told us that there was a horrible existential threat coming our way and that they could help us out and, and protect us if we paid them for it. Totally made up. <laughs> And just culturally, they seem to mythologize. They create their own stories. And part of the series, part of what this series is about is exploring why they are like that. And there is a reason that they're like that, that they that they make up these histories for themselves, why they are such inveterate storytellers. But essentially what the premise of the Axiom series is about is that humans and, and uh, some of the liars stumble on this ancient this space station that is from another alien species, very ancient and unpleasant group of aliens called the Axiom. And the Axiom don't play well with others. They don't like other people. They pretty much exterminate all of their life in the galaxy when they encounter it. They've just been kind of sleeping. They've been dormant for a while as some long-term projects that they set in motion are kind of grinding along. But if they turn over in their sleep, if they wake up and notice us, it would not go well for us, right? So the few humans who find out about them are in this terrible position because they can't spread the word, they can't spread the alarm, because then fortune hunters, treasure hunters, people will go and start trying to pillage, increase the chance of waking them up, and then uh-huh. they will squish us, right? So they have to try to figure out how to deal with this this terrible threat, this deep background existential threat. Uh-huh. So that's kind of what's happening in the background, but really it's about uh-huh. this found family, this group of people on this ship who find each other. And there's a time refugee, there's someone from 100 years from our time who's in cryonic suspension, and she wakes up 600 years from now. So she's like the closest thing to a contemporary viewpoint that we have. Like her world ravaged by climate change, but sort of recognizably like ours, whereas the future has things that are pretty different. So that character is is one of our sort of window keyhole characters to connect us to that future. As she learns things, the reader also learns things. Yeah, but I did three books in that series, and like I said, there were just there were a few characters on the crew who I didn't get to focus on, and so I did these novellas. But ideally, they stand alone. I wrote them so that anybody who picked up any of them just cold would be able to enjoy it as a short story. Well, a very long story, but yeah. Yeah. How many characters are in this story? In the collection, in the Alien Stars, there are three novellas. There's one focused on the the cyborg engineer, Ashok. There's one focused on an alien named Lantern, and there's one focused on an AI named, well, called Shal. His name is a more complicated issue. Uh, (laughs) Nice. Cool. Do you tend to write stories that have a large, how do I say, focus on, that, that drive... The relationships through family? Found family is one of my favorite tropes, like finding that tribe of people that belongs to you. And it's, a, it's an experience that resonates a lot with science fiction fans. A ton of us often would be readers in a family of non-readers, or we would, you know, we would feel like we were, because of our interests, we did not quite fit in with the people around us or the people who raised us, much as you might love them or whatever. Maybe you just had interests that were different. And then you find your people, right? You find your fandom or whoever. You find that group that it clicks with. So that's a theme that's always appealed to me. It appeals to a lot of readers, too. My fiction is always character-driven over, like, as much like as I like cool technology and weird science, I'm interested in the impact on the people of the science, right? Like, I've never been a hard science fiction writer. I enjoy reading that stuff sometimes, but it's not really the way that my brain goes. Theodore Sturgeon is one of my one of my big influences. This is somebody who's always interested in the impact of technology on human relationships and the human heart, and that's my approach, too. Hi, I'm Tim Pratt. I'm a science fiction fantasy writer and editor. I have been doing this since I was six years old. Very slow learning curve since I didn't start publishing until I was in my 20s, but I love science fiction, love fantasy. In terms of call to action, the one kind of neat thing that I do is I've been running a Patreon since, gosh, for like 
five years now, going on six years, where I publish a new story every month. And that's because I love writing short fiction, and I found that increasingly in my career, I was focusing on writing novels, because they were big, they paid better, and I found that I almost never wrote short fiction anymore. So I created this Patreon initially just as a way to get myself to focus on my favorite part of the field again, to write short stories. And so I've been doing that. There's like 70-some stories in the archives, so I'm at Patreon slash Tim Pratt all one word. Otherwise, yeah, if you see my books, pick them up. Sci-Fi Thoughts wants to expand. We want to grow from not just your podcast player, but to spread to your co-workers, your family, and your friends. But I haven't got any friends. Why, you little... One, two, three. Oh, no, you don't. We know you've got friends who are, who are into the science, who are into science fiction. These are the people who are playing Halo and Stellaris and, and other space games instead of watching college football. There are the ones in the NASA t-shirts who are busy inventing something with their 3D printers. Email them a link to this podcast. Send them a social media request. Heck, even speak to them and tell them that you've enjoyed the show. The main point is to impress upon them how much you enjoy sci-fi thoughts. Tell them to go to the URL scifithoughts.space. Don't keep sci-fi thoughts secret because keeping secrets from science fiction fans just isn't nice. This is the last episode of the series with Hugo Award-winning novelist Tim Pratt. The series started in episode 168. If you're like my friend JT and you're trying to find the start of this series, just go to your favorite search engine and type in Lancer Sci-Fi Thoughts Tim Pratt. P-R-A-T-T. Otherwise, be sure to look at the show notes because in there you have links to Tim Pratt's Patreon and to his books and other things referenced in each episode.